Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, an authentic philosopher who today is inauthentically doing improvisation. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv-ophile, hoping to not be a philosophobe. And our special guest today, Sky, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sky Cleary. I'm a philosopher studying existentialism and authenticity. I bugged out before I got the PhD, so I'm an inauthentic philosopher. I'm just out in the world doing public stuff, but you're out. You do a lot of public stuff. You've done very applied. I see your books are not about abstruse concepts. They're about things that we would cover on here. One on romantic love. How does existentialism, which sounds like just a throwback to the 60s, what's going on with that? Can you give us a little concise yeah. statement of your, <laughs> your, your position as public philosopher? You're already talking about authenticity and inauthenticity. I mean, I don't know if what you're exactly saying is inauthentic. You know, it's not necessarily inauthentic to not do a PhD. But, well, I mean, existentialism in a nutshell, if I had to summarize it in three words, would be existence precedes essence, which is what Jean-Paul Sartre said. That were, Those were his words. And it's we exist first, and then it's up to us to create who we become. And that's also what authenticity is about. It's that process of creating your essence. It's really about setting out on an adventure to create your life, not necessarily about looking for something, a gem inside yourself, like that you need to uncover to find your authentic self. But it's about going out and doing things and engaging with other people. And maybe that means doing public philosophy or talking on podcasts. Bill, does any of this sound familiar? Yes. That's something I think you mentioned a little bit here is something that I always, I don't always, but it's this idea that are we uncovering who we always were or are we building who we are? Well, the existential view is that we're building, you know, there are facts of our existence that, that you can't change. DNA, our past. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that you were born, <laughs> the fact that we find <laughs> ourselves here, you know, we can't choose that. But, you know, the existentialists were very focused on freedom and they say, okay, well, maybe, you know, there aren't you know, certain aspects of your DNA and stuff you can choose. But what is meaningful and valuable in life is to find that window of freedom where mm. you can create yourself and you can choose from an open future. Sure. And if someone chooses not to create themselves, are they stuck with what? <laughs> yeah, well, that would be inauthentic. And Beauvoir wouldn't advise it because she says, you know, life is a whole lot more exciting and interesting if you do take risks and if you don't choose anything about your life, if you just exist, then you're not much more than, than a rock or something else that just is a passive, I guess, victim of their environment. Is that inauthentic? Is a rock inauthentic? Well, a rock just is. I don't think we can make any judgments about it. It just is. Um, sure. And yeah. But the thing about being human is that we do seem to be able to make choices. We do seem to be able to override our impulses in ways that rocks don't seem to be able to. And so choosing not to choose is is still a choice. But 
what's exciting and interesting is to actually take responsibility for creating our lives and, and shaping the world around us. Sure. I think what's lurking behind Bill's joke slash question there, though, is you might ask, is it authentically a rock or is it you know a piece of styrofoam? In other words, authenticity seems to have something in common with the correspondence theory of truth, right? Where it is, is this thing correspond to some standard? Am I a, a philosopher? Well, there is an American Philosophical Association that says you're not a member of our club until you've achieved a certain degree. So according to that standard, so in other words, it's something externally applied. So authenticity regarding the self seems to be, it connotes in the pre-existential mind, are you being true to yourself? That there really is some nugget of what you were meant to be, your destiny, and you could either fulfill that potential, that destiny, or you could fail to fill that. If you fulfill that, you're being authentic. If you fail, then you are deviating. But you're saying, according to the existentialist, because we don't have an essence that precedes our actual birth or our growth, we develop this thing. We exist first, and then we sort of work out our essence. You know, if you even want to use that term at all, that means that it is an act of creativity. So why even use the term authenticity at all, which seems to connote correspondence with something that you could be true to or not? Well, I think there are different meanings of authenticity. You know, authenticity can be used in the sense of something being like genuine, like is it an authentic painting or is it true to what it's meant to be? But we talk about humans, that's something very different. And it's, as I said, you know, existence precedes essence. So yeah, there is no, you know, certain genuine corresponding thing that we need to refer back to. It's a much more outward, forward looking creative process because we're conscious, because we are choosing beings in a way that, you know, a rock or a painting isn't. I have a quick question. Are boring people less authentic? than interesting people. I don't want to be judgmental. Well, I guess it depends what you mean by boring and interesting and, and who's judging that. So I think in terms of... I didn't want to say smart. I didn't want to say intellectual. I mean, it's one of the core things about, especially Simone de Beauvoir's philosophy, is that we create ourselves in relationship with other people. Like if you're just alone and don't have any relationships, then that's a very, I guess, impoverished way of existing because we learn about ourselves through our interactions with other people. And so we do need to go out and create relationships and communicate with others uh, because you know we coexist with them and that's how we understand our world and understand ourselves. Um, so if you're talking about boring, as in someone who is just very isolated and doesn't talk to anybody, then yeah, maybe that is inauthentic. Being authentic is about going out and taking risks and playing and toying with possibilities and thinking about the future and building things and changing the world for the better. I was excited so I think- that your book was on this topic, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir and the Quest for Fulfillment. I thought that this would be a great topic to match to this podcast. Bill, are there already things that have been said, especially regarding that interpersonal bit <laughs> that are bringing things up in the world of improv in your head? I had an idea coming into this conversation, but then I allowed this brief interaction to then change. I was trying to be more authentic to change and allow this reality to wash over me a little bit. One thing that does come up in improv quite a bit, and I'm sure Mark has been exposed to enough now to agree, this whole notion of behaviors. And you mentioned, Sky, that we learn about ourselves through our interactions with other people. And I think that's very, very true. And this idea of if someone is by themselves, 
do they talk too much? If someone is by themselves, are they bossy? If someone is by themselves, we think of all the behaviors that we experience from other people. Is someone a know-it-all if they're by themselves? And the way that we talk about other people is essentially how their behavior affects us. And from our point of view, they're a know-it-all. From our point of view, they're an easy cry. So I thought that was interesting that so much of our how we feel about other people is based on our interactions with them and not just, well, I looked at, they took a test and the test came back and said that they have low self-esteem. No, when we talk to them, they're all, well, I don't know. I don't know. You know it's through our interactions that we make judgments about other people. Yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre once said, well, actually, I don't know if this quote has been confirmed, but he allegedly said, if you're lonely when you're alone, you're in bad company. <laughs> that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's not bad. Not bad. Uh, there is definitely something, and I think Mark might, we haven't talked about this directly, but there was an improv luminary named Del Close who uh, was in some movies and did some things and wrote some books and whatnot. And one of his books was called Truth and Comedy. He wrote it with Sharna Halpern and another person and his whole idea and the cat's kind of out of the bag mark for something we usually do later in the show with this idea that truth has a value all its own. If I tell you a true story, even if it's not necessarily interesting or compelling, it has a value that any imagined story can't have. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And I thought we could actually, if we're ready to do some improv scenes. Are you apprehensive now that we've warmed things up? We've just asked you <laughs> philosophical questions. We're, oh, we're just, it's just a normal interview philosophy show, but you know what's going on here. What show you shined up for? You listened to some episodes. Had you had any experience with improv? Had you thought of this as something related to philosophy in some way before? I have never done improv before. And I apprehensive is a mild way of putting what I'm feeling right now. But well, it sounded fun. And so I thought, why not? There's a lot of styles. It's like music. It's a whole range of music from dance hall music all the way to, you know, chamber music and everything in between and popular music and whatnot. And the, the music we will be playing I think Mark and I, I think everyone's, they've heard that tune and been able to contribute, I would say. Right, Mark? Yes. And I think to follow along on that metaphor, if you invite somebody who's never played an instrument before to your improvisational punk band. Give them a triangle. They're probably fine. Like there are people <laughs> in like the Mekons, one of my favorite bands uh, historically, like they were just a bunch of art students. They would just, they didn't really know how to play instruments to start and they would just get together and make noise. And so I, I think uh, the improv, the pre Ramones, they even more okay, primitive okay, than right. Ramones. Yes. Okay. The thing that eventually evolved into something comparable to the Ramones. So yeah, I think that there are symphonic yeah. level improvisers, but I'm not that. And this is a teaching environment. But the idea is, is we're just going to be people. We're going to be real people, perhaps different people from ourselves, uh, and uh, choose to exist in this imaginary world that we create together. Pretty straightforward. And I'll say that your, your uh, apprehension makes me very nervous, too, about it. So we're together. Uh, so we are at the condo. And here's the thing. You know, it's 2022. But the person who owned the place wanted a cashier's check. That seems really unreasonable. I, I, yeah. Who uses yeah. cashier's checks anymore? Exactly. So we get there, 2022, all the other condos have keypads to get in and they send you the code. This place, they had a key, not even in a lockbox. We had to call a local to come give us a key and turn over the cashier's check. It sounds like you should just smash the lock and then they have to replace it with something modern. We were renting the place. I didn't want to smash their lock. Did you have like a bobby pin or something? What are those pins that you can use to pick the lock? No, I'm not picking the lock. I'm not, I'm not breaking in. I'm just, just saying we waited for the key. 
that doesn't seem a sustainable business model. I think if we want to get out there and be selling, 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 renting, 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 we can't be waiting for things like this to happen. You have to get out there and make it happen. You have to shape the world in your image. Well, yeah, that's fine. But I'm not breaking in. It's just you seem like the kind of guy that would break in. <laughs> I, I, I would, what about me? He says I would break into this place. Sky, you've known me for a while. Do you think I would just break into a vacation rental? I don't know. I mean, I don't get that impression from you. No, but I don't know. If How long did you have to wait for the key? 20 minutes. Okay, well, that doesn't seem terrible. Thank you. Thank you. When we got pizza last time for the uh-huh. office, uh-huh. how many pieces, do you recall, how many pieces were you responsible for consuming? Okay, I took the most, all right? Yes. We have had this conversation. I understand I took the most pizza, all right? So to be consistent behavior-wise means that you, you, Break you in? fill the space with your personality. I admire your ambition. Somebody that sits back, Sky, I seem to recall you didn't even get any pizza, that you were just like, oh, oh, let's let everybody else go first. I think I was just late to the party, and so I missed out. And so... Did you want pizza? Did I take... Did you want pizza? I thought you made it clear that you didn't want pizza, and I snagged those last... You know, I'm a big weirdo. I don't actually love pizza. So, you know, I wasn't that um, phased Uh about it. So it wasn't my fault, Mark, that I took the most pizza. See, Sky, I saw you. Sky doesn't even like pizza. I I saw your expression at the time, and I understand that pizza might not be your favorite thing, but it seemed like it was the principle of the batter. That even if you were just going to take that piece of pizza and throw it right in the garbage, that should be your right as an equal member of this office, equal member of the team. I feel like you could be more self-assertive. Like when you brought the Hendersons to that rental last week and you said that they were sort of wavering and then you just let them go. You can't let these sales get away or else I'm just not sure about your future in this office. Wow. I mean, it's, it's the way that you were describing it to me before you, you well, lost. I want to talk about you almost firing Sky. That's what it sounded like. It sounded like a warning. Look, as assistant to the, to the regional manager, my recommendations do have some sway. I wouldn't actually try to get any, either of you fired. I just feel like you should live up to your potential. And in both cases, that means leasing more units per day, per hour. I feel like once you signed up for this, this job in the first place, you decided to be a certain kind of person that would be always selling, always leasing day one. Well, first of all, I thought you were talking about firing Bill. Okay, so now I'm really getting fired. Okay, who's getting fired, Mark? Who's getting fired? (laughs) Nobody is getting fired. Well, you gave somebody strike one. Someone just got strike one. So long as we meet the new quotas that are being, I wasn't going to announce this quite yet, but there's going to be some belt tightening. I really think that Nicholas is probably going to be the one. He is so just a fakey, fakey. He shows up and he's all smiles and the people can see through that, they think he's like a, a snake oil salesman. And the fact that he actually comes with a bottle of snake oil to show them to say, look, I'm not a snake oil salesman. I'm giving you this for free. I think it's just, it's just a gimmicky. You and I both know that when he's talking to Nicholas, he's throwing you and I under the bus. I believe it. And, you know, presenting all these different masks and different personas to, to different people. And, you know, really, as the regional manager, it's your responsibility to make sure that our work is meaningful and that where, you know, we actually want to come to work every day, but these threats are just not okay. I'm still officially just the assistant. I realize that Macklemore has been AWOL for about six weeks now. 
and I'm just merely acting in his name, but I'm sure that he will return. I'm sure that whole thing about him being lost at sea is just, is just hype. So I retain merely a, a, an influence on the way things are going on here. I, I'm not your boss. Okay. Well, I think we all need to step up and take some, some responsibility for, for what's happening here and think about the relationships we're building. Okay. First of all, we need to make sure that someone's out looking for, what's our boss's name again? Macklemore. I mean, I I realize that's just my nickname for him, but you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to push. You've called the Coast Guard, I'm assuming. Someone has called the Coast Guard. He just hasn't shown up in a while and I hear things, but I feel like it should take care of itself. From whom did you hear lost at sea? That was Nicholas. Okay. How, 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 if someone is lost at sea, how do you know they're lost at sea? I guess that's a question. I think there was a receipt for a three-hour tour, something like that, in his uh, bungalow. Nicholas said he's the one that has the key to all of our homes. And clearly, Mark killed him. Mark killed Macklemore, obviously. And I don't know. My suspicion is that Nicholas has something to do with this. How does Nicholas even know he's lost at sea? It is a little suspicious that he came in with Macklemore's toupee. I just thought he got one that looked just like it because he admires, because he seeks after power and he tries to uh, get the accoutrements that resemble power. And so, but it actually could be his. He killed him. He killed him. I think we can jump to that conclusion safely. All right. So maybe he should be the one that's fired just to make that simpler to all concern. Yes. The murderer. Hey, we'll stop right there. Yay. We did it. We'll stop. We'll stop there. Sky, did you have more comfortable as that went on? It seemed like you, you rose to the occasion. Oh, I'm just like, what is happening right now? <laughs> I'm still wondering. It was very, it was, How did we go from renting an apartment to like murder? <laughs> it was a little obtuse. And sometimes when we have guests, I try to start things much more cleanly and directly. But for what I wanted to achieve or demonstrate, I had to be a little bit more obtuse. And I apologize. But I thought we figured out what was going on. We figured out who everybody was. Yeah. And more. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where that it seems most of our scenes eventually get to some sort of murder, but it really just came out of the me saying assistant to the manager and then Sky saying referring me to the regional. Man- and so I had to account, whereas I know, Bill, you would just say the audience is not going to notice that. Who cares? Just let it move. I, my role could actually change during the scene and nobody would notice. But I liked putting a pin on that and Sky that you picked up on that. You know, oh, I'm just following orders. That is not taking responsibility. That is not being authentic. That at the very least, being authentic is not accepting the role that somebody is putting on you. So even though my character was trying to convince both of you to be all that you can be, clearly I'm doing this from the point of view of a boss who is, I want to assign you a role. Your role is your profession. You should be, as Sartre says, uh, you know, somebody who's too good at being a waiter is playing a role, is, is uh, being... Would that be helpful to sketch out that example a little more clearly? Because I'm not remembering it that clearly in terms of, was this an example of someone being inauthentic because he's too good at being a waiter? If he was being authentic, then he would show his humanity through it or something. Right. The point about the waiter is that, you know, he's playing his role to perfection and is convinced that he is this role. And that's, that defines who he is. Whereas 
you know, he write, talks about this and being a nothingness. So he's this waiter. He's neglecting the fact that he is also nothingness, like that there's also these spaces to play with. And, you know, if he's just the waiter, he's almost like being like that rock we were talking about. He's just this one thing and denying that he has other possibilities and, and denying his humanity. So I guess with us in the, in this leasing office, if we, are so consumed with fulfilling this role and, you know, being on the hamster wheel and, and doing this over and over again and forgetting that we're not machines, we're, we're actually humans, then we do tend towards inauthenticity. But of course, we all have to work. We all have jobs, you know, that is, you know, we do take on different roles for different situations and parents, whether it's parents or a job or, or other things, but to recognize that that doesn't define us completely. And we're a multiplicity of personalities, I guess. We have something written on our name tag, our name and our job or whatever, but underneath our name tag on our heart, we have something else that's written. (laughs) No, but it's this idea that certainly in improv, it can be a bit of a trap to fall into you are what your job is. And that's not true. We can have lots of regional managers who behave certain ways. One of Mark's first things was like, that's terrible. You should break in. Now, what does it say about who Mark is? What kind of person he is? Is it the same person who would later say, look, you have to know when you're in the right. I think he said to you at one point, Sky. And it's like, okay, that's we're, we're building who that person is. And it's not on his name tag. It's not his job description. It's who is, I think, his more authentic, more useful, certainly useful in an improv sense, but more authentic self is like, he's kind of type A. He might be a little proto-fascist. You know, he, you know, he's like the classic assistant manager. In fact, even if someone says, oh, there's this guy at, this, at my office, he's the assistant manager. Everyone already assumes that it's like, oh, they're too big for their britches. They think more of themselves than they really are. It's kind of a trope to be the assistant manager who's trying to kiss up and is mean to everyone else. So it's like, well, is who they are assistant manager or is who they are a jerk, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like figuring out whose people are by their behavior. Existentialism being in its prime in like what the thirties through the sixties, something like that. But it, there's a definite before world war two and after world war two strains of this, that everybody just following orders and just participating in this atrocity really made it more imp- <laughs> acute. I wanted to say that you need to be who you are. In other words, not sign up for Simone de Beauvoir referred to the fascists as subman. They're being like a rock because they are just maybe kind of have a brutal nature. They get off on the fact that they get to perform atrocities because somebody's told them to. But ultimately, they're not thinking for themselves. They're just going where the wind, where society is pushing them. And but that was in there even back to Heidegger, who in the 20s, in being in time, where he was then later accused of, he went along with the Nazis for way too long. Uh, <laughs> but at least yeah. officially in his proto-existentialism, you know, he's one of the first guys to talk about existence as this specifically human thing, and we do not have a fixed nature. So he's the guy that Sartre was playing off of. But yeah, Sky, any thoughts about that, that whole uh, being yourself and how this played into Heidegger's choices versus Sartre and Beauvoir's choices to be revolutionaries, be Marxists for a while, that kind of stuff. I mean, they wouldn't have talked so much about being yourself, but being for yourself. And that brings into that idea that there is no fixed essence. And you know, for them, freedom is meaningless without responsibility. So people 
during the Nazis during the war were, as you said, submen or, or serious people were just following orders, thinking that, you know, them as their decisions, you know, had no direct consequence. And so they're really giving up their responsibility, giving up their accountability for these terrible atrocities. And if you do give up your responsibility, then you're on a very immoral path, very likely, and an unethical path. And this is why Bukwa, as you said, in The Ethics of Ambiguity, where she talks about submen and serious men, was trying to create an ethics, which Jean-Paul Sartre didn't do so much. And, you know, trying to say, well, you know, if I just go and do whatever the hell I want, if, like Dostoevsky, if anything goes, then that's just going to be chaos in the world. And Bubba says, no, other people are there. We coexist with them. Um, if we value freedom for ourselves, then we must value it for other people. And so ethics exist in this intersubjective reciprocal relationship between us. And for the Nazis, they broke that reciprocal reciprocity and, and that intersubjectivity by treating other people as rocks or as just things in themselves that they could throw away and not recognize as true humans. And so she loved Ayn Rand is what you're saying. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we've gotten political before Mark and sometimes we both kind of dogged on libertarians from time to time. And I think this was a very well-spoken dig on some of that, some of those ideas. A sub-man or a responsible man? What was the So, yes, this is what I want to clarify. The serious, serious man. man. So ah, that's the serious in, man. In Simone de Beauvoir's tale of the existential perils that we go through in, in trying to be a full human, like sub-man is the worst. It's sort of the not even trying. However, serious man is the next level up, and it is very easy to fall into. It is like, I'm not going to just go along with the flow. I'm going to consciously adopt a cause and let the cause be master of me. In fact, a lot of uh, religious folks say, you know, you got to serve somebody. If we just let ourselves act upon whims, something that Ayn Rand was like her chief opponent is just acting according to whims. Then like Sky was saying, it's just chaos. That's a different pitfall. Maybe the adventurer or something that's a little higher, but the nihilist. Okay. Uh Serious man is the second one. So yes, in fact, I think my character in that scene was, you know, I've adopted the role. We should all be soldiers in the uh, real estate army. And if that means breaking the rules, smashing of some locks, then so be it. You're justified. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's being serious. It's like giving more importance to the job or the structure or the the company than to us as individuals and choosing beings and people with responsibilities. And that's bad faith because it's acting as if we don't have freedom. And that's inauthentic. Like So the serious man, when you first said it, I felt like, the serious man was something to, to strive to achieve. But now you're saying the serious man is something we should move through. Exactly. It's a yes. pitfall. So beyond the serious man is the nihilist. So the, Did I hear that right? The nihilist is the serious man who's gotten disillusioned. That like, oh, okay, that cause, you know, I was the president of the Bill Cosby fan club and I put and my all nothing. into that. And now I find out he's a scumbag and just like nothing matters anymore. I joined the army and just cleaned toilets all the time. <laughs> and it was miserable experience. And I was around a bunch of knuckleheads. Yeah. The disillusioned serious man is the nihilist. Okay. Yes. So what's beyond what, what's beyond the nihilist? What comes next? I, forget. I thought it was the, <laughs> the adventurer. Is that next? The adventurer? Oh, okay. yeah. Someone who, yeah, goes the opposite direction and it's just like, yes, I'm going to go and, and do all these things and take risks. And someone who is, becomes kind of reckless. And sort of leans too far into freedom. 
Anyway, what do you mm. remember, Mark? I, yeah, I should have so, read up on this beforehand. <laughs> no, no, this, this may not even be. This is, this is just one of my favorite. I don't always remember all the steps here, but yes. So, you know, the serious man is committed to one cause, whereas the adventurer is just like, seize the day. I'm going to do this thing, but then whimsically, I'm going to change my mind and do something else and do something else. So like sky, we should bring this back to love so that you can't love as the sub man that doesn't work. You just be going through the motions. If you try to love as the serious man, like the gospel of love, like, well, that would make you kind of a scary person like, it might work out. If you love as the adventurer, well, it would be very passionate and you would be putting yourself into it, but the partner would be perhaps unreliable, perhaps would go on a, another adventure with another partner quick enough. <laughs> I guess something that Beauvoir and Sartre were sort of known for in their unconventional personal life. But beyond that, then is supposed to be, I forget what the next level is. Maybe that beyond the adventurer is we're getting into actually authentic territories like, yes, I will have the good parts of the adventurer, but I will also sort of realize, as you were saying, Sky, my own responsibility. I will not just go around the world breaking hearts and whimsically turning from one cause to the next. I will responsibly judge among these various adventures and balance my life. So that sounds like me. That sounds like the highest level. That sounds like me. <laughs> What's the, what, what should we, what, do we have a name for this person? Well, it's, I mean, <laughs> um, I think it's just Bill. Yes. Uh, this, is, this is arbitrary. This is totally arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, the ideal is authenticity, but it's an ideal. And, you know, human existence is ambiguous and we're always in tension and we're always, you know, making these choices. And, and sometimes when we choose things, we don't always know the outcomes of what we're doing or we don't always know our intentions until we leap in and do it. And this goes back to Kierkegaard as well, you know, what you were suggesting about the adventurer and, you know, the sort of Don Juan type character who's just skipping along life from, from one adventure to the next. And even Kierkegaard said that sort of person is like a stone skimming across the top of water and just ready to plunge down into the depths of despair at any minute. So, uh, yeah, so authenticity isn't like a goal that you can achieve and, and put a certificate on your wall. You're like, yeah, I'm authentic, but rather it's, it's a receding goal. It's always out of reach. It's always something that, you know, maybe we're, we're moving towards, but it's an always like not quite yet. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Always on the horizon. I love it. So should we do another scene? Yes. Mark? Yes. Well, and I'm wondering, no. I'm still very curious. I know Sky's last okay. book was on love and if there's some way that we can I don't want to make things weird. <laughs> this is this is a G-rated far, show. Far, far too but, late. Uh, <laughs> but if there's some way we can use the scene to get at something of the insight of the existentialist thing on love, is that too too high a goal to aim for with this? Or Bill, do you feel like I, I'm being inauthentic? <laughs> I'm coming, I'm bringing ideas into a scene and I should just let the scene happen. Let it exist to be true as it grows and blossoms. Let it be whatever plant or tree, you know, it's just, you see a seed, you have no idea. I mean, if you're a botanist, you know, but for me, give me any random seed. I have no idea what kind of plant it's going to be. Is it a fruit or a vegetable or a, is it a pretty rock? flower or a, an annual or a perennial? I have no idea, but I got to plant that seed and let it grow and then let it be the best, whatever thing it is, whatever, whatever it wants to be. I'm going to say this. I'm not sure if Sky, if you feel like starting a scene, I will give you very clear instructions and directions. Or if Mark would prefer, Mark oh no, I literally love, rubbing I love the his guest, hands. The guest who feels uncomfortable at this whole thing in the first place <laughs> and force her to <laughs> yeah. say the first thing and give us a setting, give us a something. Well, what I did was, and now again, <laughs> the, the setting and the where and what's going on that can all be determined as we go along. I started that last scene telling an absolutely true story. I was literally on a family vacation ten days ago 
where the people wanted a cashier's check and we had to get a key from a local to get into our little vacation rental. And your reaction was like, yeah, hey, it's 2022. Or do we really want to, <laughs> can we get with the times a little bit here? So you had to go down to the bank and like, do you even, you know, and she's like dusting off the cashier's check book uh, you know, to write mm. one. I hope I remember how to do this, but that's that. Now, if you feel comfortable, Sky, just telling us a true story, first person, true story. Now, here's the thing. I don't work for a real estate manager. No one suggested I break in. The trueness of the story simply got it going. And once it got going, got its own legs, once that flower began to bud and blossom, now we know what it is. And it may not be true anymore, but it started from a place of truth, of, of, of absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that cool? You think you do that? Now, I do have a special little note from Mark here. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to send it to you I in received, our little chat received. here. Yes. And does that make sense? And that probably tacks with about 98% of things I've said sure. on all these podcasts. <laughs> and we can talk about why that works in a moment. But prepare for this to quickly leave the realm of truth, Sky, and become its own beautiful blossoming plant. Okay. Uh, so it's my birthday coming up, and I wanted hey, to have- Hey, congratulations. <laughs> you didn't tell us. You didn't tell us. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, and I, my friends suggested I have an Alice in Wonderland party. Your work friends. No, I just... Because we're your friends. Just philosophy friends, believe it or not. Okay, well, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But we, I mean, I didn't say, Mark and I didn't suggest this. Yeah. But it sounds like fun. Are we invited? Can we go? Are we we allowed to hang out with your philosophy friends? Sure, you can come. Um, And in fact, I had to cancel it because no one could come. So I don't have... So I would love to find a date when you guys can come. Totally. uh, Do, Do we still have to do an Alice in Wonderland theme? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's your choice as to whether you want to adventure down that rabbit hole <laughs> um, and okay, play I'm, around with possibilities. I'm um, really, I'm really conflicted about that theme because I loved the books as a kid, but then I found out about him as a human being, and I mean, you know about all the stuff Mark, no, with Lewis Carroll. Let's let's not do no, this right now. Okay, Lewis no, Carroll. Fossil evidence has, has determined he murdered over 32 people with his bare hands. Did you, were you aware of this? I mean, yeah, I had heard stuff about him with like, you know, that suspicious thing with the, him telling the story to the little kids and you wonder, but no, he was an actual, I think he was Jack the Ripper. It was actually determined. Okay. Mark, I thought this was going to go in a typical social justice warrior kind of direction about reevaluating people, but I do not think Lewis Carroll murdered anybody. Can we talk about Sky's birthday party? I think maybe you're obsessed with murder. Have you, hey, have I'm you just, anything I'm you just, want to tell us? I'm just asking questions. I've heard things about Lewis Carroll, and I feel like that the whole elite among the English literary circles, they were hiding so much. It's like the Illuminati. They were hiding so much bad stuff. Pretty much nothing from the Western canon should be read okay, anymore let's table, at all. Let's table that. We're going to table that and talk about Sky's birthday party, who her friends, her philosophy friends, quote unquote friends, planned and then bailed. <laughs> Are you okay, Sky? Do you feel all right? I'm sorry that happened to you. That was probably miserable. It's okay. I'm okay now. I feel like I'm making new friends with you guys. <laughs> so I thought we'd had a friendly relationship, and I'd be more than happy to hang out. You tell me the date. I'm there. Okay. Next good. week, you said. Yeah. 
you know, just to close off this discussion about English authors. So one of my other favorite books as a child, have you ever heard of Enid Blyton and the Magic Faraway Tree? It's about these kids who discover this magic tree and then they climb up. And I just realized recently when I went back to look at it, that there's, there's a lot of spanking in it. Like everybody spanks everybody else. <laughs> and so like, yeah, okay. there's a lot, lots of issues. Um, okay. I guess with that. Next Wednesday, you probably heard the whole thing no, no, about the Wizard of Oz being a uh, allegory for the gold standard. Have you heard that story? Yes, Mark. No. We've heard so this a million times. I just the thing with the spanking. I know this again was a common th- trope. It's actually referring to. It's the, do you the, know? The, 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 do you the, know when you take the Scarecrow was the mindless farmer, the Tin Man was heartless industry, and the Cowardly Lion was the military industrial complex with that are all just chicken hawks. All right. We've been down this yes, road, Mark. Yes. And that's why okay. I wouldn't go to your L. Frank Baum theme party because you know that it was once- my child's. It was my child's party. Okay. Yeah. You, well, you're going to fill your child. your child with this. I only brought that up as a parallel because the spanking also, when that occurs in a certain kind of literature, has these connotations that you don't even want to know about. I don't even want to say it out loud. It's so... It's it's beyond political commentary. It is anti-American, anti-British, but it was the thing that was the driver of political policy for most of at the root of colonialism. It's really about colonialism. And I just think that we can't live in the shadow of the past like that, that if you're going to have a theme birthday party, it should be, I would say, even some of the contemporary stuff, because like Little Mermaid, all that stuff that, again, that connects to older sources, which are inevitably corrupt. So maybe just something that celebrates purely the present. Find something that is purely ephemeral, present. In fact, maybe just make it up. And then that is the only way that you can be have an ethically clean theme for your party. Yeah, and maybe even authentic, because if we're referring back to these old stories that are plagued with um, ethical issues, then, you know, maybe we need to create new narratives. We need to create our own Story. Okay, so if we're going to create our own theme, what could it be? Uh, friends celebrating someone's birth. Uh, that, that's the theme. <laughs> See, but birth, that's so in the past. That's so determined. Can we just ha- ha- celebrate pure responsibility right here and now for our actions this Party moment? Party for responsibility. Yes. The theme tonight, <laughs> responsibility. That is the only responsible theme to have is responsibility itself. <laughs> that sounds like a boring party. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, but it has to, parties are about fun. They're about, you know, being playful. They're about drink. I mean, Beauvoir and Sartre were infamous for, for their parties and for their drinking and for being mm-hmm. silly at parties as well. So maybe it's, maybe it's a, a party where a silly party. Celebrating Boom. someone's birthday is actually super random. Like we we're born on this random day. We didn't even choose to be born. It's not our responsibility to have been born. And so why are we just randomly making it up? Boom. I think that sounds great. Wednesday night, we'll go down to Guthrie's. They got all those old board games. You know, we'll play Life or Sorry or something ridiculous, something that, that we played as children and just have a silly fun time with it. That sounds fine. So long as there are no pre-established rules again that's sort of referring to back to you know chess represented war uh sorry represented uh i don't even again want to say out loud what sorry represents but just do the math buddy uh so are, are a pure a pure thing with rules pure silliness pure fantasy pure whimsicality 
That is perfect. I think, in fact, uh, an improv-themed party is just abstract enough to meet all of my moral requirements. An improv-themed party. Are there any rules in improv? Like, I, I think... I, oh, no. You, know, you still haven't told me any rules, so no rules? No like, rules look, at uh, all. The only limit is your own imagination, and even that might have some, might be, <laughs> might have some problematic things in it. Guys, you... I'm terrified of not knowing what to say. Okay? I'm terrified. I'm going to nix that. I'm sorry. I'm just absolutely terrified. I wouldn't know what. Don't you realize you're already improvising right now? The thing that you're saying, you didn't plan this beforehand. You are already but this being doesn't authentically count. This you. doesn't count. No, it, everything counts. Everything. Be responsible for what you're, is coming out of your mouth right now. That is improvisation. You are already the artist you seek to be. Wow. I don't know who you heard that from, Mark, but I'm sure they were a genius. I think that was from Lewis Carroll. <laughs> no, it was me. <laughs> Seeing. Yeah. We'll start right there. We'll start right there. That was the theme of our first ever episode, Sky, was that even though people are, are may say they're afraid of improvising, they're always. I have done a lot of improvising in this conversation, so I still am not sure what's happening. <laughs> so I feel like you were working in some things about friendship. Was that related to yeah. your existentialism and, and love and friendship? Was that. Or was you just using the words there? (laughs) Connect (laughs) this to something smart is what I'm saying. Well, in retrospect, it was me being smart. No, at the time, I'm not sure. Yeah, but what underpins, you know, the existential idea of authentic love is really like a great type of friendship. You know, it's about people inspiring each other and respecting each other and supporting each other and doing things together. And the point is, and what I was thinking about with, with the party is that, but friends also have their own goals and sometimes they need to go off and, and do their own things. And so the friendship will be stronger when people, the friends recognize that and recognize that you can't always be there for everybody. And, and it's not, it's actually not true that not everybody could come to my party, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Again, like I said, this will be, it will, it will grow into whatever flower it is. What you just said about love and how the people who they want to be there and it's positive and supportive and people are able to build something together is very much in line with the improv. The part of improv that's a little spiritual or a little mystical and is less technique it's definitely in line with all that. And if you were to take an improv class and you might get some of that verbiage, either from the teacher directly or just chatting with the teacher, it's very much the, the whole notion of yes and is the thing you always hear associated with improv, that you agree and go along. And that I may not know what it is, but it's happening and I'm involved in it. And I, I'm going to be honest with what's occurring. So your your little blurb there was right in line. Yeah. And I was thinking, so there is, you know, you said there's no rules, but there is sort of some kind of, you know, intersubjectivity happening here where we're respecting each other's views and opinions and taking in what they say and taking it, you know, another step. So what you're saying is that improv is super existential. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No matter how bafflingly stupid your improv partner uh, <laughs> seems to be in yeah. saying some of the things. That I could. Now, again, I thought it was important that we treat Mark. I was treating Mark when we started getting very, we're talking about a party. We've all had that friend who changes the subject to something really heavy while we're trying to be light. And that's what Mark did. And again, to pat myself on the back, when those kinds of things occur, you can treat people as they're asking to be treated. And in fact, to not treat them that way would be a disservice to ignore them. And I don't know what authenticity would say about that, about how we treat the pariahs in our life, not the criminal pariahs, but just the people who we just kind of ignore and let 
go on their merry way, even though they're annoying or even though they, you know, you can't be friends with everybody and you can't respect everybody if if they're not going to respect you. But, you know, I think what's important is creating that connection. And and in fact, you know, so Beauvoir and Sartre kind of build off Hegel in that, you know, we only really exist through being recognized by other people. And so, you know, you don't have to be friends with people, but you also don't have to be horrible to other people. And, you know, so that's basic respect for people, even strangers, even, you know, not walking into some or expecting everyone to get out of your way as you walk down the street, you know, that like very basic, you know, fundamental respect about, you know, existing with other people is key. So what do you do about people who are awful? I mean, yeah, maybe you do have to distance yourself from people sometimes if they're not giving you that kind of uh, respect in return. Sure, sure. Long ago, we did a partially examined life episode on existentialism in No Country for Old Men. And we're looking at the murderer character as who is written by Cormac McCarthy as sort of an existentialist, like self-proclaimed ubermensch. And I respect you because I look you right in the eye as I kill you. Like, in other words, he had some belief that we are in this sort of savage, we kill to survive kind of world. And that is what treating other people as an equal amounted to. And so respect and being nice doesn't necessarily, and this guy was absolutely authentic with himself. And this was, you know, used as a potential counterexample along with, you know, a lot of the people that complained about Nietzsche and the things that he uh, influenced as being authentic seems like it might not be sufficient to get you an ethics in the traditional sense, right? In terms of actually treating people with kindness. Right. And that's where Beauvoir is unique in trying to, you know, bring in that ethical element to existentialism. And she says that as long as oppression exists, as long as people trying to dominate each other exists, then then none of us can really be truly authentic because our freedom depends on the freedom of others. And so, you know, if we go along being oppressive to others, then we're actually end up being the least free because, you know, we're always looking around behind us to see if someone's about to stab us in the back or something. So. (laughs) No, I think it's well-spoken. Well-spoken. Yeah. I think it was back to Plato who described the tyrant seems like the most free possible person can do whatever they want, but actually they're the least free because they're controlled by their desires. So freedom also has a relationship to your own internal workings and feeling like those are actually channeled in a way that is healthy. So even though it might not seem like somebody who is like has a great fitness regimen and always eats exactly what they're supposed to eat when they eat, like maybe they're, you know, under manically controlled by some sort of health rules, or maybe they are living exactly how they in the abstract would choose, which is maybe what freedom is, as opposed to whimsically doing whatever you want. In our world, especially Western world, I'm curious what other countries and people in the past ambition and how we can all agree that, you know, in some ways ambition is good, I guess, but some people are too ambitious. And I think at least we think of ambition as always good. It's always good to be ambitious and you should be, and you should try to better yourself. You should try to do those things. And that the slacker is seen as wrong or broken. Now, as a slacker, as a underachiever, if I were to Google how do you achieve your goals? I'm going to get a lot of uh, stuff about being ambitious and achieving things and striving Mm -hmm. for things. How does all that fit in? I think today we realize that some people are ambitious in the wrong directions. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with being from an existential perspective. It's nothing wrong with 
being ambitious in itself, but certainly, you know, capitalism encourages ambition. So it's the context in which we live can, you know, fuel that in destructive sort of ways. And I also think it comes back to our discussion of seriousness, you know, where saying, oh, well, we have to achieve or do these things because society expects it of us. And it's not us truly choosing what is, you know, exciting and interesting and enjoyable for us. So, you know, part of the process of authenticity is trying to, you know, separate out what the pressures are around us. Does the journey towards authenticity require ambition? Or do we need to thin slice ambition and make several different words out of it? Well, I think Beauvoir would probably say, well, no, it doesn't require ambition, but it requires transcendence, which is, you know, stretching ourselves in new and creative ways and, you know, overcoming our animal nature. So, for example, not just sleeping around with hundreds of people if you're Don Juan, but rather saying, okay, you know, what am I really doing here? Or the di- the person obsessed with their diet or going to the gym. Like, okay, so that may be part of my animal nature, but what is it that I want to do to make definitive choices about my future and the type of person I want to become? So, yeah, I would shift from ambition to transcendent. Sure. Okay. So in that scene, which I want to hear Bill's a little more comments on so we can sort of ferret out to close down here what the improv lesson is. But I, you know, I was starting as the serious man about whatever this version of social justice combined with conspiracy theory about historical figures and getting rid of the entire Western canon, all of those being exaggerations of things that I've actually heard people say. I'm Googling right here issues with Lewis Carroll. Folks can look at that themselves. I didn't know enough about it to actually, you know, so I just decided to <laughs> fantasize something that was far beyond anything he's actually been accused of. But then by the end, turned it into a you know, people say that you're a you're a whatever Nazi if you are basically the serious man about that thing. So I was becoming a, what a a seize the day, an improv Nazi, an existential Nazi, something of we absolutely have to affirm complete responsibility and complete freedom, and sort of being too gung ho about that. And that just seems like a way of just like if you're a relativist, then people will say, well, what about your principle of relativism? Is it, isn't that relativist too? Can we likewise say about this existentialist insistence on freedom? That by clutching too tightly to that, you're violating it in itself? Yeah. I mean, freedom for its own sake. I mean, that's problematic. But I mean, it's not like, you know, occasionally Beauvoir said, or not occasionally, she did once say that, you know, sometimes we became too obsessed with freedom. But the core of the existential idea is not that we have freedom, but that we are freedom. So freedom is the core of our being and it's what we do with that freedom, how we direct it into the future. That's important. But of course, as I said, not only freedom, but, you know, balancing that with responsibility and acknowledging our situations and, and our communal existence with, with other people. That's what my character was trying to do. And here is, if I get my own philosophical bent on things is Mark is obsessed with these abstractions, freedom and responsibility that you can't find them sitting around outside. They exist completely in our own minds. What doesn't exist in our own minds is Skye's hurt feelings that her friends <laughs> bailed on it. That's real. That's real. <laughs> There's no two ways about that. So let's. No, I'm not really. I'm not that. I know. I know. I, I know that really didn't happen in the scene. In the scene. In I kind of put. Yes. I kind of put that on you. But I think anyone listening at home would say people planned a party and then couldn't make it. I think it'd be reasonable for them to say. I bet they would be. But it's got to be upset about that or hopeful if you don't like the people who were planning a birthday and it all fell through. We'll just reschedule. 
<laughs> so that so that was Bill's secret message to me was have an emotional reaction is having concerns in a irrational way about in a moral absolute. Okay, so that is an emotion as opposed to and what was my delight. Scott, but you didn't even finish your first sentence and I was already <laughs> I had already had a feeling about what you were saying. Do you recall what that was? You said, it's my birthday coming up. I'm like, hey, it's your birthday. All right. I'm that guy. High five. <laughs> way, to, way to go. So what was your, what was don't your. Worry, don't worry about this silly abstract stuff. You were having a birthday and your friends bailed. Oh, so what was the message from that bill based on apart from what you've told me in previous scenes of like, actually have a, sure. have a reaction. Like what? <laughs> Well, this whole thing started with this whole, before we had a chance to chat, going into this, talking about authenticity, what mm -hmm. jogged my mind was this idea that truth has value simply for being true, and that we can't make up any story that will, our made-up story may be funnier or more interesting or, or, or whatever, but it isn't true, and that our true stories and our own existence have a value that is unique to it, and that's what makes it special, and that we can start with these true stories, we can start with skies, philosophy partners, and that it will have a value. I mean, you, you might think it's boring or dumb or no, I don't want to be, I want to be Harry Potter. I don't want to be, my life is boring. My life is dumped. No, no, your life has value because it is true. And that there are shows all around, improv shows all around the world and all around that will use either personal monologues or stories from the newspaper, or will use, will leverage truth and leverage that unique value it has to get their improv shows started or going or as a centerpiece. And I think that's interesting. Okay. So it was two separate lessons. The, the, <laughs> well, that, we're going to start with the true in. thing, like, you know, the exercise that you set up and then have an emotional reaction that those are that emotional reaction then creates identity and authenticity. And you're my guy versus Mark's guy. That was determined by their first emotional take. Hey, Mark's, hmm, I, I smell a rat. You know, and Mark did a fine job of following that person through to the end, sticking to who you were. Take that, take your pat on the back, Mark. That was a fine, fine job. You didn't bail on it. You stuck right through it, right to the end. Well, I want to compliment Sky for being a wonderful guest. <laughs> There's one Indeed. more task we have set before oh. you. Do you know what this is? Is this the one where you, where I have to say whether I vote philosophy or improv? Yes, you get to. <laughs> we've, we've artificially <laughs> gamified the show so that yes. there can only be one winner out of this, as inauthentic as that may be. It is so inauthentic, but. <laughs> We've made this bed. Now we got to sleep in it. Well, I think they both bring their own, you know, values and and interests. I don't know if I want to pick, but I would say that I learned a lot from the improv, of course, because I've done done it never before, and so <laughs> I really appreciated that. And so, I guess from my personal perspective, I'm going to go with improv. Excellent, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you, folks, for listening. Sky, plug your book one more time. Thanks, Mark. Yes, How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir, and the Quest for Fulfillment. Thank you. Well, I sure learned a lot from you today, Sky and Bill. And I learned a lot from you, Mark and Sky. And thank you. <laughs> for more philosophy versus improv, see philosophyimprov.com. If you're not listening to this through the Philosophy versus Improv feed, then you're not getting all the episodes and you're not getting them promptly. If you enjoyed this, we'd love you to leave a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts for the Philosophy versus Improv podcast or wherever you listen to this. 
If you were a paid supporter of this podcast, either through Apple Podcasts or at patreon.com slash philosophy improv, then instead of these announcements, you'd be hearing us talk a little more with Sky about her book. There is such bonus talking after virtually every episode, plus several standalone bonus things there. We are so grateful to Sky. Make sure to look at skycleary.com for more information about her and her book. This is the penultimate episode of our season one, and we are so glad to have virtually ended it here with such a bang. We've got one more in two weeks, and then we have a ridiculously talented first guest for season two on the hook. So stay tuned. Thank you much. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.